when people have to stretch, and I'm sure you find this in your motivational work, when people have to stretch a little bit, it somehow feels more relevant for them, or they find more aspects of themselves that they never knew they had. So, you know, when you're tired and your pack's heavy, and we had some challenges that came up with behaviors or things that got lost or, you know, someone discovered they'd left their cup behind at the previous camp and then you've only got one cup. Okay, so what are we going to do here? You know, we're going to have to come up with a, a solution. And, you know, we didn't carry endless cups in case someone left it. So I think we cut a, a plastic milk bottle up and to, you know, kept the lid on but used the base. And that turned out to be their cup for the rest of the week and things like that. You know, you have to improvise and be smart and find solutions and not just throw a paddy and chuck your backpack down the mountain and have a hissy fit because then you're not going to have any tea or coffee for the rest of the week or let's let's make it work and I'm, I'm a dreadful let's make it work person I'm always into fixing and finding a solutions. Hi my name is Andy Ramage welcome to my podcast where I attempt to share the story behind the story of thought leaders authors athletes everyday heroes and alcohol-free adventurers who have found meaning and purpose through their work while also sharing some of their greatest wisdom. Let's do this. Joe Roberts is the chief executive of the Wilderness Foundation charity. Joe and her team focus on the effects of wilderness training and developing youth leadership built on environmental awareness and ethics and developing positive well-being, mental health in young people who are vulnerable and at risk. The Wilderness Foundation also helps those who have suffered domestic abuse or addictions reconnect with themselves through wilderness experiences. And I just think it's such a wonderful thing that they're doing. Also, the Wilderness Foundation headquarters are just up the road in Essex. I had no idea. That's what I love about doing this podcast. And just next week, I'll be joining Joe Hall, who's also been on this podcast, and Joe Roberts for a little walk around their 400-acre wilderness site near Chelmsford. And I just love the idea that wilderness experiences can heal and reconnect us to what's truly important. This is a subject I'm becoming more interested in. And my aim is to inspire you to get outside and leverage the power of nature. Also, please do check out their website, which is thewildernessfoundation.org.uk, as they're always looking for volunteers and any donations, as always, are greatly appreciated. All right, kick back. Let's do this. Now, before we get started, a quick word from our sponsor, Athletic Greens. Yes, we have a sponsor out the traps for the podcast and not just any sponsor. Athletic Greens is the most comprehensive daily nutritional drink I've ever tried. And it was really important to me to align with a sponsor that were aligned with my values and a product that I actually used and genuinely have been using Athletic Greens for several years now. And I got into it when I first started to transition my diet from a very poor one to an optimal one. And it was listening to podcasts such as the Rich Roll podcast, the Tim Ferriss podcast, and later Wrong and Chatterjee's podcast, who are all partners with Athletic Greens. I thought, I've got to give this stuff a try. And it has been a game changer for me. My morning routine, as many of you will know, looks like this. I walk downstairs, fill up a large glass of water, drink it, fill up half full another glass of water, pour in a scoop of Athletic Greens, fill it up to the top, drink that I'm on the bike. Now, I know I might have freaked lots of Athletic Green users out who might be like, you can't put the Athletic Green scoop in the middle. It has to go in at the start or at the end. But that's the way I like to use it. And it's like my nutritional insurance because even with an optimal diet like I have now, life gets in the way. Stresses, lack of time, travel, all of those things are there to trip us up. But I know if I've had my athletic greens in the morning, I'm like job done. And here's the thing, it is packed. Let me give you some of like the science and what's actually going on inside this drink. Each scoop's got around 75 vitamins, minerals, whole food sourced ingredients, multivitamins, multiminerals, probiotics, green superfood blends, and so much more. It basically fills all those nutritional gaps. That's why I use it. And this is where it gets interesting for you guys. Right now, Athletic Greens is doubling down on supporting your immune system, so they're offering my listeners a free, F-R-E-E, -E, one-year supply of vitamin D and five free travel packs with your first purchase if you visit my link today. Basically, you'll never have to buy vitamin D again. 
right? So whether you're looking for peak performance, you're trying to just level up in your life, you're trying to fill those nutritional gaps, you're an alcohol-free adventurer trying to replenish your body, right? This is the drink for you. Simply visit athleticgreens.com forward slash Andy Ramage, right? And join the alcohol-free adventurers, athletes, health-conscious go-getters from around the world who make a daily commitment to their health. Again, simply visit athleticgreens.com forward slash Andy Ramage and get your free year supply of vitamin D and five free travel packs today. Joe, it's lovely to meet you, albeit virtually. Thank you for having me. Yes, this is so cool. And another Joe in my life, Joe Hall, who, you know, we've partnered up with for the Live Life Connected, which I believe you delivered a workshop for those guys was just so impressed joe was like you have to meet the other joe of, of the wilderness foundation and have a conversation with her because what, whatever you did that day you know it really it really impacted joe hall and all the people that were involved so it's a pleasure to have yeah, you well, she's so inspiring isn't she i mean she's just one of those life forces you know she just kind of energizes wherever she goes She's wonderful. So yeah, no, thank you. So lovely, lovely kind of people around, which is just such a blessing. Yeah, and it's it's just nice to make these these contacts and being local in Essex, which is always wonderful and always sunny, as I like to tell absolutely every, anyone and everyone that that listens. So I thought what we'd do, Joe, if it's okay, yeah. we'd just sort of get like right into it straight away. Maybe if you could tell us a little bit about the Wilderness Foundation UK, how you got into it and and its aims. Okay, so um, Wilderness Foundation UK um, has been running, gosh, the the UK Foundation has been actually active since about 1976. Um, It started in South Africa in about 1956 with this idea that if we took people out into the wilderness, but in an incredibly primitive, simple way, so you weren't in a Land Rover, you weren't in Mm. a tent, you weren't in a luxury lodge, you literally were just carrying your backpack on your back. That was it or this immersion, there was something that happened to people in terms of getting to connect with themselves, but also to connect with the natural world, because you'd taken away all the paraphernalia and all the layering and all the kind of additional things that we put onto our lives where we kind of lose contact. It's a bit like dirty plugs. We kind of lose that essential contact. So that started up really early on in the 1960s. And our founder was an extraordinary guy called Ian Player. Um, And he was tough, you know, I think the early trails, people didn't have water and all sorts of things, you know, he was rough and rugged. But um, he was very into the kind of kind of spiritual dimension of nature and wilderness. And, and he was a strong Jungian, he was just one of the most well read people, Andy, I've ever met Mm. my whole life. So he would be the person who could quote our tracts out of the Bible and poetry and just extraordinary. He was a wilderness, rough, wild man. So he then became really friendly with some really significant people in the UK. And in 1976, they founded, they founded the Wilderness Foundation here. And it sort of rumbled around and did, sent people to South Africa. And then I got involved in 19, about 1998. I was just returning from living in Luxembourg for eight years and um, had read this book called Shadow and Soul. And it was by Ian, and I'd known him since I was little. And started to think, well, I want to do something around this. I want to be involved in making a difference because a lot of work had taken place in South Africa. And I was like, what could we do more of here and how could we help? And so I got very involved then with fundraising and organizing UK people to go out to South Africa and do wilderness journeys. And then Damalola Taylor died in the early, I think it must have been the end of the 1999, the early end of, end of, or early 2000. And um, I started to think, well, gosh, we're doing projects in South Africa that are linking urban youth who've kind of lost their way into wilderness-based programs that really were very cathartic and therapeutic. And they pulled the whole community around. So, you know, sitting in, in, in Essex, I started dreaming about how could we bring some of these models Yeah, because there were crises of our youth in in inner cities, Mm. and there were crises of our youth who'd lost their way. And what could we do here? And um, so I founded a program called the Turnaround Project. In about, I started to do the research in about 2002, 2003. 
and had um, a lot of people wanting to help and be involved. And then in 2007, we launched the first group of Essex youth, you know, some from Onga, uh, some from Braintree, Chelmsford, you know, really young people who I think people were kind of like, work with this group because we don't know what to do with them. You, yeah. you want to try this out, here you go. And so we ended up doing um, this program, which lasted a year, but it started with a big wilderness therapy program up in Mull. And I was just laughing with someone earlier and saying, why would you take a group of really tough kids to Mull in November when it's dark at four o'clock in the afternoon and it's raining and it's cold? And but we had this extraordinary experience. And, um, you know, the guides and the therapists working with the group, we took mentors. So we had mentors, local people from Chelmsford area of Essex who wanted to help youth, signed up and trained as mentors, but they came on trail as well. They were carrying their backpacks up the mountains and and each person had their mentor and vice versa. So we were kind of a bit like a moving army of Essex yeah. moving into Mull but started to see how dramatic that it was that if you actually worked with people, if you worked with people in a very human and loving way, but with really good boundaries and respect, you gave them the space to discover what their strengths and capabilities were. And most of these young people were incredibly capable, but they'd never really dug down deep enough to see what yeah. they were able to do. So that was the, the start. Um, it was an incredibly challenging program, but hugely insightful, hugely beneficial. I'm still close to several of the young people from that first expedition. From from the first trip to Mull. I mean, that's amazing. Yeah. And actually, Mull is, and that's uh, the island off Scotland. Yeah, it's on the west coast. That's right. So um, uh, the guy that I co-founded One You Know Beer with, Ruri Fairbanes, is from Mull. Oh, really? Funny from enough. Tertorial. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Right. Yeah, he's, that's where he's from, which is which is pretty cool. It's a mad link, and I mean, I can only imagine. I haven't actually been there myself, but I know it looks like a beautiful, a wild place. I can imagine taking these sort of Essex kids out there, and what you know, just a complete change of scenery and and existence, and that reconnection with something so raw and so basic that I think for many, I'm sure, kids and adults alike, feels like it's been removed from our lives in so many ways well i think it's also very beautiful and i think we need beauty you know there's mm. something about beauty that lifts your spirit you know i remember one evening we did one-to-one -one therapy while the rest of the group were playing frisbee on the beach then we kind of worked one-to-one -one just on one of the days and it was honestly a pristine white sanded mm. beach with, you know glowing white sand and turquoise blues water and just silence, you know, nobody else. We're the only humans almost on the world, in the world, you know, that sort of feeling. And being able to really sit on the beach in a corner out the wind and talk really deeply to the young person about who they are and where they're going and what they want and what motivates them and what do they feel they can offer themselves in the world. And it's such meaningful conversations, mm. nothing trite, you know, really intimate, deep searching but you, you're in the same space, both of you. So the therapist, young person are, are matched in a very kind of mirrored kind of way. It was beautiful. And, you know, we had some terrible rain and we had ice cold weather. But actually, the more challenging we've discovered our wilderness journeys are, almost the more our groups benefit. It's almost... That's interesting. Yeah, so the, the more extreme, for example, the weather on, on those challenges, the, the better the results. Yeah, I think it's a funny thing. I always try and avoid the weather, probably because I'm a wuss because I'm South African. But I think, <laughs> I, think, I think when people have to stretch, and I'm sure you find this in your motivational work, when people have to stretch a little bit, it somehow feels more relevant for them. Yeah. Or they find more aspects of themselves that they never knew they had. So, you know, when you're tired and your pack's heavy, and we had some challenges that came up with behaviors or things that got lost or, you know, someone discovered they'd left their cup behind at the previous camp and then you've only got one cup. Okay, so what are we going to do here? You know, we're going to have to come up with a, a solution. And, you know, we didn't carry endless cups in case someone left it. So I think we cut a, a plastic milk bottle up and, to, you know, kept the lid on but used the yeah. base. And that turned out to be their cup for the rest of the week and things like that. You know, you have to improvise and 
be smart and find solutions and not just throw a paddy and chuck your backpack down the mountain and have a hissy fit because then you're not going to have any tea or coffee for the rest of the week or let's let's make it work and i'm i'm a dreadful let's make it work person i'm always into fixing and finding a solution so but it's good for them to find their own solution so anyway so uh, um we did we started turnaround which still runs today yeah. we're in our 13th cycle of the program wow. which is just beautiful and you know working with a variety of young people who stay incredibly embedded in our hearts because we we become so close and we get mm. to know them so well and then we started a range of other projects here in England, in Essex, you know, working with 13 to 15 year olds. Uh, we did a big survey and said, what age was it that we should really try and harness uh, some change for young people where they could actually really have a chance to process and develop some kind of direction for themselves. And so we run a project uh, called the Out There Academy. And that's been going now since 2014. Um, and we've got a lot more therapy now since then. So we now run face-to-face -face therapy in the outdoors. We've got about 30 therapists who outdoor therapists on our team. And we do a lot of group therapy work. So working, you know, with adults who've got addiction issues or domestic violence, or we're working with some asylum seeker youth who are based in Essex. I'm very keen to do something for the Afghan families who are being resettled. Yeah all the time kind of using nature and wildness and simplicity and quietness and a whole range of intentional values that just help soothe people and then yeah. when they soothed then they can think more clearly yeah and that's such a beautiful thing that it's it's sort of you know available to so many different demographics and situations whether that's again addiction asylum rehousing as it were or yeah. our teens and I'm just wondering around the teens I'm not sure if you've read Joseph Campbell and his wonderful book Hero of a Thousand Faces and, and a big part of that book really is that hero's journey isn't it that quest and that that was very much part of our archetypical Carl Jung type human nature this this rite of passage that doesn't really exist for most of us in the western world and I'm just wondering is that why that sort of 13 to 15 type age bracket maybe stood out a bit because I guess that historically would have been in and around those moments, wouldn't it, of coming out of sort of almost into some form of, you know, early adulthood. Well, do you know, it's, I'm so glad you raised that because when I first started being very involved in the Wilderness Foundation, Rite of Passage was something I was really fascinated by. You know, coming from Africa and looking at a lot of wilderness therapy work came out of the States where you had Native American processes yeah. and wisdom. And yet we didn't have anything. And I remember doing loads and loads of quests of talking to people and exploring, you know, where could we try and create some kind of ritualistic rite of passage? I mean, if you're Jewish, you've got your bar mitzvah and you've got... Yeah the community and religion coming around. I guess if you're Catholic, you honestly, you have your confirmation services. But a lot of people have drifted from religion, so they don't have those old practices anymore. Um, so, gosh, we really struggled. We really struggled to find it. So what, what we've done is, you know, kind of borrowed symbolic ways of doing things from other cultures to a certain extent. I mean, there's a lot of Celtic work, but I haven't really found a way to... We talk a lot, we look at a lot of the Celtic tree stuff and Celtic mythology, but never found that rite of passage. But I think you're right. I think one of the things that's missing is there's none of that kind of staging. Everything's sort of become blurred. Yeah. It's like, you know, if you're 12, you watch your older brother's 18 movies. There's no kind of like staging, like I need to now wait for the next stage because now I'm at the right. You don't have anything you wait for anymore. It's all just right there so we we use quite a lot of you know the symbolic metaphorical work so i'm just planning i'm running a, a therapy training for outdoor therapists starting tomorrow morning and you know one of the things we'll do is build a threshold you know we'll build a symbolic threshold you know that you're leaving one space and entering another space and what i'm you know so all these journeying principles yeah. So, you know, we did that on Mull, you know, lugging huge rocks on the beach and then the young people walking through and shouting to the wind what they're going to leave behind and opening their arms to what they want to walk, walk into. And, you know, the rest of that group celebrating and clapping and, you know, giving them 
that sort of community spirit. So I guess we've tried to create that in really soft, gentle ways, um, but without having any real cultural identity to hang it to. Yeah, exactly. But it's still that sense of rite of passage of, of crossing that threshold, you know, into that the unknown and that hero's journey. And I, yeah. I just think that's so powerful and, and something that as an adult, and this is why I'd be interested now, I'd almost like to go back and revisit, you know, in that sort of quest or that nature quest as a, as a guy that I've, I've read his book is Bill Poltkin. And I feel oh, familiar yes. with Yes. But it's got a beautiful book, Vision Quest. I think that's what it's called, or, or Nature yeah. Quest, it's called. But again, would take adults on those nature quests yeah. for days, you know, days whilst fasted into the wilderness, I think predominantly in Australia now, um, for that opportunity to actually sort of reconnect at some sort of very deep and meaningful spiritual level. I think this stuff is endlessly fascinating, just not even in that rite of passage, but yeah. for adults as well. So how do you find it with adults? Well, I think it's interesting. I think that um, we've been doing a lot more adult work recently. You know, we were very teenager and children oriented at the foundation, but now we've been doing a lot more adult work recently. And I think, I think it depends on the adult. Mm. I think that um, you know, particularly people who are going through some kind of crisis are very open to that kind of questing. And I think it's funny. I was just doing an interview earlier on a, on a commission that I'm working on in Essex called the Essex Renewal Commission as a result of COVID. I'm a commissioner on that. And, you know, we're saying, what was your biggest takeaway from COVID? And, and I think that it, it forced people into an, a new questioning. Mm. I think a lot of people stopped taking things for granted and they started to question again. And I think we needed that slowing down to be able to touch base again with things. We were all moving so fast before COVID. I mean, I know I'm generalizing, but I certainly was. And many people I knew were, were moving so fast that you, you don't have the time to really, really reflect properly. So I think a lot of our adult groups, we actually really encourage reflection. So you might sit in solo for an hour under a tree, or you might do some symbolic, you know, making art from natural materials quietly to reflect how you feel about yourself or your life. And the minute people start reflecting, then that quest comes in, then the questions start coming up and you're enabling them to start even thinking more about where I am, who I am, where I fit in, how do I fit into the bigger picture of life. So we've, we've, we've borrowed some really beautiful stuff and it's, we've used it in all of our programs, but mainly Turnaround, called the Circle of Courage. And it's a Native American sort of process. And it says, for an adolescent to become a healthy adult, we need four key elements. The first and most important is a sense of belonging. Okay. The second is independence. The third is mastery and skills. And the fourth one is generosity. And it breaks generosity into two sections. So it says generosity is around giving and being kind, but it's also about humility. And so in all of our programs, we'll track with our young people, you know, where they feel they're growing their sense of belonging, where they're growing all these different elements. Because in the Native American sort of quest or culture, it was that we need to build these things to really move into adulthood really well. And I think even our adult programs can do the circle of courage, you know, where am I Absolutely. on these scales? Because I think it was Roosevelt said, if we didn't have something good to belong to, we would find something not good to belong to. Yeah. So, so where do we grow belonging? How do we build that sense of not being alone? You know, and, and aloneness is all one. That's where it comes from. But how do we not be alone? We're a social animal. Where do we fit in? How do we feel connection? And, and I think what we build in our programs is a connection to yourself, a connection to the other person, but also a connection to the earth. So you kind of have like three layers of yeah, belonging. What, I, I think that's so, it's so powerful. And no, and I identify with this completely. And especially I think in the, the, the space where I've spent a lot of time, which is helping people change their relationship with alcohol. Funnily enough, I think that opens up their minds and ideas to a further quest in life. They're ready to listen anew. 
and actually explore avenues. And they ask those big questions like, what is this life thing all about? And I think it feels to me, again, generalizing that so many people are a bit lost at the moment. Mm -hmm. Again, organized religion and like we said, all those sort of rituals and rites of passage on the whole definitely are in decline. Therefore, lots of people I just think are caught in this you know, Western trap of consumerism and all these things. And it's a bit like, what's, what's, you know, what's this all about? And I think there's so much sort of flatness, you know, five out of tenness where, you know, people are just longing for something. And a lot of that is community. And you're so right. And a lot of it is connection, you know, in many ways. There was a great book uh, by a guy called Johan Harry. And very much the thesis of that book was the opposite of addiction is connection. And I think community, connection with the nature and reconnection with thyself is so important. And I think a key element to all of this is the simplicity of just having some time, you know, literally yeah. just some time to reflect and not being switched on 24 seven. You know, you're just trying to get through it all the time, sort of survival mode, just to almost come out of that for yeah. a day or two or whatever it is, just to sit under a tree, like, yeah. which is something so humanly foundational that we would have done since day dot for all these millennia that like how many times you know anyone listening to this can they actually say i've sat under a tree for an hour and just just pondered life i bet you it's barely anyone yeah i I think it's it and you're right and i think that's one of the things you know that's so fascinating is you know we we've kind of lived i'd love to come up with some concept like life interrupters you know we've just fast-tracked so fast from a, a very different way of living in probably the last 200 years we've we've exploded with busyness and technology and cars and planes and big cities and everything's just gone mad and you know some of the theorists you know talk about biophilia hypothesis that we are pre predestined to be close and living within nature and We've exploded away from all of that. Mm-hmm. And, and actually, I think psychologically, our psyche, our spirit hasn't actually been able to catch up. And, yeah. and there was a lovely thing about, um, I can't remember which one was it. It was, uh, who was the big, Stanley, for example. There was this thing about, um, he talked about how the porters sort of would talk about the need to walk slowly so that your spirit catches up with you as you're walking. And we laugh when we say we go on a wilderness trail somewhere in the olden days to South Africa on a plane. You never had the time for your spirit to catch up because you just, you, nothing off. takes, it. Not, it's like a pregnancy. I think pregnancy is so important because it's nine months of getting used to something, mm. you know. But I'm sure a lot of people would say, I don't want to be pregnant anymore. Mm. If I could flick a switch and, you know, conception, baby, right, nothing. Yeah. You know, we all seem to, sorry, those are my dogs going mad. There's, we never seem to be able to, we, we want everything to be too quick. We want everything to happen instantly. We want, we, 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 we're not going through that kind of growth phase that things take time, seeds take time, plants take time. I, I, I think we want things too quickly. And I, and yeah, I think I, that's what's happened. I'm sorry about that. I think that's so that. true. That's okay. Um, I think that's that is it's so true exactly that we've evolved all these millennia in a certain way and it's just in the last 200 years really everything's just changed so dramatically and the speed of change is accelerating and that's the thing isn't it even yeah. you know you've obviously been doing this for you know many years now you know what 22 22 odd yeah, years years yeah I mean and what the sort of changes that you've seen in that time I guess you know that's right through the whole sort of smartphone development have you noticed a sort of trend um over those years or is it similar people are showing up with similar type of just issues around reconnection do you know i sound like such a such a an old fart sorry i'm not allowed to say that (laughs) i think what really 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 hits me is how little people talk to each other now yeah i get really sad in restaurants or when i see families together and everyone is on their phone or on an ipad it's just I kind of, I think we've lost that ability to talk and just hang out together. You know, there's a kind of, there's always another person in the, either a game or a, a, a text running or a message running or social media running. You, it's just wherever you go. I remember sitting at, there's a new development in Chelmsford at Bewley Park. 
And um, oh no, it was it was it was there. But another one hit me. I was at the station in Chelmsford, and there were two rooks having an enormous fight on the on the train lines. And there were people all sitting waiting for the train to come in. And this was like nature at its most spectacular and yeah. the roar. And nobody was looking. Everyone was on their phones. No, everyone's heads were down. There wasn't anybody looking up and taking note. But everyone was just absorbed into their phones. And I, and I think we miss so much. We miss so much joy of looking into someone's face and their eyes. And we're just so fixed on screens. And I think that's the biggest, biggest change that I have seen in these last years. And I, it makes me kind of sad because from, a, from an animal anthropological, you know, I used to work as, an, as a social anthropologist, we need social contact. We need to look each other in the face. We need touch. We need connection. We need to belong. We need to be in a social group to feel safe and to to be alive and we're becoming more individualistic becoming more alone or one in our in our way of living yeah and, and i think made that worse i think what, what you said there's important to feel alive i just think without that connection to something or someone or that conversation or that you know that touch of someone's hand or that look in someone's eye it just feels, and again, I think this goes back to what I was saying earlier. I think this is why there's that sort of malaise. There's a bit of a cultural malaise that people have just fallen into because yeah. they're missing those key ingredients of being human. And I yeah. had a lovely lady on the podcast called Laura Willis, who has got a, an organization called Shine Offline. And her research, which went back to almost the start of the smartphone, said that our free time, i.e. the time that we can do what we wish with, about a year or two after the smartphone had already jumped to about 50% screen time when they run that same test. And bearing in mind, this is pre-COVID and everything, you know, this is three or four years ago, it was 97% no. of, on average, 97% of our free time now, like that real free time where you could be bored, you could, you know, sit in nature, sit under your tree, 97%. I mean, imagine pre-COVID, it hasn't really got... <laughs> anywhere to go is it so we've almost no. sort of topped out in terms of that the amount of time we're actually spending to spend time with with people reflect yeah. in nature and it, and it reminds me over actually um lockdown we got a hot tub we got one of those lazy boy spas right couldn't go away there was not a lot going on so we said let's just invest in that and it was one of the best investments we've ever made as a family because what we realized is in there, one, we were outside effectively, you know, in nature, in the garden, which was great, or looking at the stars, but there was no technology in there. We didn't realize it at the time, but it was this place, and it still is, where we get together as a family, all the good goss goes down in, in the hot tub, because there's, it's probably one of the few places on the planet right now where we can go, and there is no distraction. There isn't that sort of buzz, or one of the kids mm. has half got an eye on something, or a bit of a TV in the background. It's just this outside in in nature in our garden, and it's a blissful time. You know, we connect and catch up. And I just can't help but think we just need more of this. And that's why I'm really drawn to what it is that you're doing at the uh, Wilderness Foundation in all its different genres and guises, because it's just something that feels so incredibly necessary, more so now than like ever before do you know i think i think also it's really difficult um because i i think we need to also almost try and help families find how to do this again you know and i think you know we've been running a, a fascinating project with women in domestic abuse coming out surviving domestic abuse and and just the drama and the stress within family and the pain and the hurt and all the different kind of dimensions but also if you throw poverty into it and insecurity about money and food and safety and you know people are so distracted in their own stuff that they don't really have the time or capacity to really be opening their arms out wide enough and so everybody becomes more in their heads and so therefore you know even though you parent well and you want to be a good parent you're so caught up in all the drama and, and, and we were just talking earlier, I don't see many families eating together anymore. Most of our teenagers that we work with might forage in the kitchen and then they go straight up to their bedroom and they game there or they're on their phone, but they're not eating together. And I think 
it would be really lovely to do more family work. We already do family therapy where we're trying to sort of help people learn how to deep listen, how to make space for each other, how to let other people have opinions, because actually you might have an opinion. It doesn't mean mine has to change, but I'm just giving you the space for yours and just build up that kind of way of being together again, because I think we've lost it. And, you know, I know some young people, a young person I worked with about five years ago, and, and she was desperately lonely because she would come downstairs to try and make conversation with her parents, but they were on their phones all the time. And she mm. said she'd come and sit in the lounge, but they wouldn't talk to her because they were just on their phones. Mm. And she'd be saying, can, can we chat? And they'd be, yeah, yeah, I'll be with you in a minute, Look back to phones again. And I'm so glad your family's found the hot tub. And I think you can see that benefit and you can feel it. And your children will remember that for the rest of their lives, those times in the hot tub. Because actually, we don't really remember the times we're sitting all on our phones together. We remember the times we were doing something together or being together or connected together. That's yeah, where our mind will, will, will disappear to. I think that's so important, again, about the work that you're doing. Because in some ways, you know, there is that Maslow's hierarchy of needs that's come into my mind. And it's well and good for me, you know, in a fortunate position as a, a white male in, in society that's at a certain economic level that can afford to do certain things potentially that allow me to reflect and you know think about the bigger picture and I can only imagine as you know from an economic standpoint if you're still in survival mode and you're just trying to get through you know you've got bills to pay you've got stresses you've got a family to try and raise the child you know the, the, the sort of being open to you know reconnecting with nature or feeling like you've got the time to do those things my guess is that it would be a lot harder. So uh, I, I, I'm assuming that the work that you're doing is obviously facilitating families to be able to do those type of things, which I think is important. We tried during COVID to try and come up with a with a kind of a plan that people could follow um, on the on, on on social media, and it was kind of like, if you live in a flat, how can I connect with nature? Mm. You know, what things could I do with my kids if? I've got two small children in a two-bedroom or a two-roomed flat in Tower Hamlets. How could I, mm -hmm. you know, what could we do? How could we get outside? And it was things like, you know, walking on the pavement and then counting how many different green plants we could see in the cracks and, you know, almost building mindfulness things of touching leaves as you walk past someone's garden and, you know, trying to look at birds and saying, you know, even though some of us were enabled to be in the countryside with gardens, but there were things we could still do, even if we yeah. lived in a busy city. And there were still bits of nature that were still there for us to to touch into and to get the joy of. Um, but we have to think about the person who lives in concrete and who hasn't got access. Mm. We have to think about how do we really help those families or support them to get that mental health soothing that some of us have got on our doorstep? Mm. And how do we bring that equality of nature to everybody you know it's you know we've talked about equality of wealth but there's that natural heritage that's got an equality element to it too you know as a human right how do we make sure that we we enable everybody to touch in and i think schools have a role to play um with children but it's really important as a quest for for me on a personal level and for the foundation that we are making sure that we do everything we possibly can to help everybody have that ability to find a way to get that soothing and that connection. Um, and it's interesting when you were talking about phones, um, Andy, there's some of the science around what goes on in our brains with nature. Um, there's, a, there's a theory, there's, oh, sorry, my dogs are, I've switched everything <laughs> right. else off not to disturb this You can't switch the dogs me. off, don't no, worry about that. I'm so sorry. Um, there's some young people arriving for therapy at the office and they've got their noses to the windows. They're very excited. Um, so I think there's, there's something called um, attention restoration therapy. And the Kaplans, who were really famous wilderness therapists, developed this, this kind of thinking with others. And it said that most of our lives, when we on that 97% with our eyes on a screen, it's what they call directed attention. So everything is just focused in. But when we're in nature, there's several processes that take place, and they call it soft fascination. So your, everything on your eye is softer, and also you're using more peripheral vision, and you're actually taking in 
different angles and landscapes and colors and textures on your eyes, which then are actually influencing what's going on in your brain. And so the outcomes of what they say with, with attention restoration therapy is the level of creativity that people come up with mm. once they've been in nature. Because actually you've allowed the brain to actually soften and expand. Yeah. And, and we're not in this one-dimensional directed attention. We're actually allowing our brains to use all of its wonder and effects on it that allow our creativity to come up. So I know for myself, I write amazing poetry when I'm outside and I can write really well when I'm outside. But when I'm back here at my desk, I feel a bit more stuck. But it's yeah. just interesting. My brain works more creatively outdoors than it does indoors. Yeah, it feels like there's there's been this sort of plethora of science around nature now which has been really exciting from forest bathing to um what you just described there and the way i read some research as well which i found fascinating was and it made perfect sense to me it was basically like when you're interacting in the the concrete jungle as it were if you can imagine your attention is firing off here there and everywhere you've got to stop yourself getting run over by cars you've got to deal with you know beeps of horns you've got to deal with people and imagine what we're actually trying to do there by just almost using a lot of energy to not focus on all the things around you know the, the peripheral and just get you know keep your sort of survival mode whereas in nature you just switch all that off because you're obviously yeah. it's a, it's a surrounding that you're so in tune with so that was just so obvious for me. It was like, all oh, right, yeah, I get, I totally understand that. You know, if I'm out in the wilderness, my brain is just totally at one and ease. And of course, there's those rumblings in case there's a rustle in the bushes. But in general, it's absolutely switched off. Whereas you can imagine the same walk through a concrete jungle and all the different stimulus and all the different things that he's got to almost block out to, to keep you on track to not get knocked down by a bus or whatever it is. It's a totally different world. And for me, that was... Oh, I get it now. And then I started yeah. to see all the, the further research around forest bathing and blood pressure and all of that. And is that something that's part of the work that you do now in terms of forest bathing or research? Or do you sort of leverage that into what you do? No, we've done, we, we're actually quite academic here. I mean, I'm a bit of a closet academic, I think. Um, so we've, we've been working with Essex University for about the last, oh gosh, since 2007 and oh, measuring... Wow. What happens to, um, so all of our work gets researched and, and evaluated. Um, so we did a 10-year study using all of our turnaround statistics and what happened to young people through our programs. And what it showed is that the more connected you feel to nature, which is using kind of peer-led review questionnaires, the more your self-esteem improved, the more your mood changed in a positive direction, the higher your resilience, and the more of an increase in your hopefulness and I was really interested in this um, discussion around hopefulness. And there's a great uh, wilderness, you know, therapy academic in the States called Keith Russell. He's my big hero. You know how you develop these heroes in yeah. academia? You just think, oh, wonderful. And Keith Russell, you know, developed the hopefulness score because he, the idea is that if you're not hopeful, you know, you think of your motivational work. If you haven't got anything to hope for, why would you bother to mm. do anything? So um, we've been measuring connectedness, nature, and hopefulness. And, and we can demonstrate through these extraordinary graphs and statistics and bar charts the significant change in how people grow and develop and feel as a result of being more connected to nature. Um, so we are very, very interested in it. And, and, and I'm very, I mean, I'm a, you know, very passionate about reading and understanding more and more as much as I can. Um, and looking at all the different theories and the different sort of practices about where the neurological changes are coming and why are they coming and what's actually happening in our brains, what's happening with our eyes. Our eyes seem to be quite um, an important interpreter for our connection to nature and how that affects the brain. So there's a whole lot of research on something called fractal patterns, which are those repetitive patterns you see in snowflakes. And they talk about the repetitive patterns of leaves, you know, the veins in leaves and mm. trees and how the branches come out. Um, and, you know, how those kind of fractal patterns falling on the eye um, have a kind of, again, a soothing effect on the brain. It's, wow. it's reconnect, re-earthing us, um, yeah. possibly back to, you know, the primitive kind of connection of which we were in for much longer than we've been in now. 
and you know ideas around the study of awe and wonder you know what happens when we're, we're in a place of great beauty or splendor you know what then happens in terms of our mental state and one of the lovely things in that is that the ego seems to go down and the sense of social awareness comes up so and and that sense of of the other you know when you look at something really really beautiful outside or you know you get a swell in your heart that then connects you to the world and to the earth and to something bigger than yourself and that again creates connection and is soothing for us and i think you know it's 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 quite simple and and i cried on the way to work this morning because there was um, a survivor of the twin towers talking on radio 4 this morning and she was sort of talking about how hard it was had how many people had helped her and she didn't help anybody um, and then she said, and then I just go into my garden and I plunge my fingers into the soil. And she said, something then happens and I can, I can feel okay again. I can feel mm. that I'm not alone. I'm not, I'm not cast out. I'm, I'm reconnected and re-earthed. And it was just, honestly, I just sobbed all the way to work in the car, you know, just listening to yeah, this. beautiful. You know, it was so touching. That and for was... her and for all of the... And, you know, Monday we had a, a, a reunion of our domestic abuse women and, and one woman just talked so deeply about what's been going on in her world. But then coming to us where the view from our outdoor safari tent into trees and long grass and the birds are singing and she just said, I suddenly just feel okay again. I, I, I kind of feel at peace now. I'm, I'm back in a space where I can stop breathing so shallowly and so panicky, I, I can settle, I can settle here. Yeah, so, so and, and if we don't settle, we can't deal with our problems. You know, we, we, we can't work in a reptilian brain of fight, flight or freeze. We can't come up with good thinking that really helps us and others because we're just too frozen or, or too panicked. So, you know, a lot of the people that come in outdoors have been addicts. You know, and there's something that with what you started and, and the addictions are only there because there's been something really painful or difficult and unable to resolve. And so you have to soothe yourself. I have to find something to soothe myself. And it can be sex and work and alcohol and drugs. and But, but nature can soothe us. So it's almost like a kind of a, a vitamin N bottle we, we've got there to help people. Yeah, and I think that's it's really important to me. And and nature's definitely been soothing to me over the last, you know, ten years. It's always been a big part of my life, but especially so since you know I stopped drinking, for example, and set out my own quest in that way. That I've spent a lot of time in nature. It's almost a joke that I would go to the woods every day and do my Facebook lives from the woods, and you know, I love showing people around over Fawndon. And to that note the sort of spiritual moments, for want of a better mm. word, that connection with something bigger always happens in those moments of nature. I haven't experienced it anywhere else like that. It just seems to happen that you find yourself, I'll turn a corner and into a meadow and the sun's shining or just coming up over the hill and you just, there's that sense there's something bigger at play, yeah. which is, it's so warming, you know, at every level, you know, in every sort of fiber of, of your body, there's something magical that happens. And I can only imagine again, that if that's, it must be a necessary part of being a human, you know, that we need those bones of ours warmed at times, just through yeah. the simplicity and the beauty of awe and wonder of, of nature. And I think that's what's so important, again, you know, with the, the, the work that you're doing, allowing people to have that and, and earth themselves to put their fingers back in the soil. And funnily enough, that's something that I do. I'll often bend down and literally, there's an overwhelming urge to put my fingers like into the, especially when you get into the real deep woods and it's like that dark peaty, mm. I just want to put my yeah. fingers in there or I'll lean up against, I have to do stealth tree hugging, I've got to admit. So I can't get in there for the foot. So I lean up against it as if I'm doing a calf stretch because I've normally got my running gear on, but secretly what I'm doing is breathing into the tree, you know, and there's some, again, if you put your hands on the bark of a tree, there's something unbelievably, it's just, I can't quite describe it. I can't put my fingers on it literally, but it's, there's something about that. You know, there's, so, there's all of these things I think are so inherent to what it is to be human. And I think it's just such a beautiful thing that we're trying to encourage people to do that or facilitate that. 
And then on that note, just something that I wanted to get to, I'm conscious of your time, I don't want to keep you for too long, but was about climate as well. And I noticed that you're looking at that. What is your view for that? We've talked about hope through being in nature because I started to really get interested in climate change. I bought all the books as I do. And I think I read the first two and then I was like, I can't read anymore. I literally couldn't read anymore. It was filling me with apocalyptic dread to the point that I was like, I just don't think this is actually helpful for me. It's not beneficial. I'm actually in fear of, you know, literally my life and my children's life, which in some ways could be um, extremely motivational to do something. But for me, it was almost overwhelming. So I don't know what your thoughts are around what we can do and where we're at. I know it's a huge, a huge ask. I mean, I'm a, I'm a commissioner with the climate, the Essex Climate Change Commission. And do you know, I, I, I was talking to someone about this this morning. I said, I think we've got to be, we've got to make people sit up and realize that this is really serious because it is mm. really serious. But we've got to do it in such a way that we don't just terrify people who then switch off. And I mm. think sometimes working with teenagers who marginalized, and I hate that definition, but who are kind of lost, I don't think they're getting the desperation and I don't think they're getting the action. They're kind of hanging in the middle and they're just not really understanding. But I think they, they, there's been some really interesting research in, in Essex about what people are doing and who's doing what. And there's an army of young people who've got really active about it. Mm. I think we've got to be very careful not to get elitist, like I'm really good and you're really bad, because I think that's what humans often go into that sort of frame, like, frame, you know. Um, but I think what I'd like to do is to sort of, if everybody had their checklist in their kitchen about 10 commitments that each family makes, and this is what we are going to do as a family. I know that, you know, particularly on the on the Climate Change Commission, one of the things we've really, really talked about was was food and diet. And, you know, I'm, I'm constantly trying to be a good vegetarian, but I cheat all the time because I'm just a bit lazy in my structure. But I'd love to be, I'm still also, sometimes I don't think veganism is so good for the planet. Not, there are lots of things that we're doing good, but they've got another consequence. And I don't think being a vegetarian always is good for the planet. And I don't think being a meat eater is good for the planet. So none of us can find the right thing that we can absolutely 100% say what we're doing is absolutely right. But what has definitely come out of our work with the Climate Commission is that plant-based eating is probably the best thing we can be doing, as well as, um, you know, really watching how we utilize things like plastic, how much we're traveling by plane, how much we are actually driving, what kind of cars we're driving. And then not everybody can afford at this stage to make some of those changes. So it's trying to maybe have a list of things that we can all commit to on a sliding scale. And and so long as we're all conscious, we all know that this is a really big, big issue coming towards us. We're already in it. It's not coming towards mm. us. But if everybody did something, it would make a big difference. And I think there's something about communication and there's something about how we we don't make it, as I said just now, elitist, that everybody has their own sense of power of what they can do themselves and not feel disempowered. Um, and I'm not quite sure how we do that. I mean, we've talked a lot about community engagement. I think there's a lot more to maybe help schools to really kind of get young people really, really um, thinking in a, in a fresh way, although I think a lot of them are already. I think my generation are, are very good at recycling, but we're not very good at driving better cars. We're not very good at being plant-based. You know, the kind of 50, 60, 70 year olds are actually living very austerely. I mean, my husband is an incredibly passionate, you know, green liver, you know, the lights are all off and we're stumbling around in the dark and, you know, recycles yeah. everything, uses little plastic as we can. We try and do that, but yet when I did my WWF um, check on my climate change, I'm 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 not doing enough. Hmm. But I think you know we re rewilded our garden. Um, we, we're doing as much as I think we can do, but we could probably do some more. But I think it's that's not key, making isn't it? people feel bad. I yeah. think we can't make everybody feel bad. Otherwise, people switch off, you know, uh, on on a, on a mass scale. And I think you're right. It's it's doing what you can, 
bases as much you know information as you have whether that's moving towards more plant-based or whether it's you making sure you recycle or turning your lights off and ultimately i think that's what you know we have to hope for and that's collectively can move the needle in some shape or form i mean it is incredibly worrying it's something that i'm growing more passionate about by the minute and it's somewhere where i definitely want to spend a bit of more of my time researching and understanding it because i think it is really important to educate and understand as well so that you don't just get caught up in the scaremongering or you don't get caught up in you know the he said she said of it all it's like what can i actually do that's going to make a difference collectively and 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 maybe that's something down the line that i'll definitely get more involved in because you know it is for i think all of us our generation and the generations to come the big thing really that we we need to focus on i think i think unfortunately i think a lot of it also has to do with our relationship with the natural world and our disconnection because i think we're living a very disconnected life and we don't think about the electricity we're using unless we're paying by a meter and we don't think about the water in a tap because we just switch it on and off and you know i think you know that's what i love about wilderness work is because everything is is completely real you know if i need water i've got to walk to the river and carry it up in a bag and you know i, I haven't got electricity i've got to make light out of a torch i mean i probably my torch battery is doing some terrible disservice to the planet through lithium or but i think i i think that the more connected we feel to nature the more i think we're inclined to want to look after the natural world yeah. and climate change and the natural world come together and I think if we understand that the healthier the climate, uh, the healthier the climate, the healthier the planet, the healthier we are, that actually, you know, I wanted to make a point about you leaning on your trees because I love that. And, you know, one of the things we forget is our DNA is so closely linked to trees. I think it's something like 80-something percent wow. of our DNA we share with trees. I mean, how bonkers is that? Yeah. So, you know, we are... We've we've kind of learned to be the the dominant species, but we're just one of of a whole planet of species. And the more we can get humble, and the more we can actually start to see ourselves in relation to the rest of the natural world, then I think that climate change and the way we behave will soften. But we've never we've just been too big and too strong. We've been too able to just completely charge through everything. And now I think we're starting to to soften a bit. I think yeah. David Attenborough has done a good job. He reaches so many hearts yeah. and minds. You know, people like yourself who are influential, who are interested, who are questing, who are thinking, you'll be able to change hearts and minds. Mm. You know, we're educating around 6,000 children a year when there's no COVID here on site wow. around their connection to the natural world. You know, we're really, we've just got to keep doing it. But not making people feel bad not but still exciting people that we've all got to work together because it, it's it's huge i mean when you look at the statistics of flooding in essex mm. I mean, it is horrendous what what we're looking at coming into the future you're looking at the heat you're looking at drought you're looking at water shortages there's just an enormous amount coming towards us and and for our children's sake we have to we have to act we have to do what we can yeah, and I think that's the key bit um, for me that was watching the David Attenborough documentary, funnily enough, that you mentioned as well. And I actually, I teed it up and I watched it and said to my girls, I've got teenage girls, 12 and 15, or sort of 12 and 14 at the time. And I was like, right, we have to sit down and watch this documentary. And, and the truth was, both of them were really fearful. They knew what the doc documentary was going to be. They knew, you know, the punchline at the end. And, and it was really difficult for them because instantly it raised those questions and I could see the fear in their eyes of is our planet, you know, is it doomed? You know, is it what's 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 going on? And it, it was a, a really powerful experience for me. And, and I sort of put on my superhero dad pants and was like, right, that's it. Your dad's going to do something about it. And, you know, and, and I feel like I haven't actually done anywhere near enough. And, you know, in truth, and I'm someone that is really engaged and really interested you know, and these are the things you think, do you know what, you know, I think it does need a, a, some deep thought and, and for everyone, myself included, to get out there and, and do as much as we can, because it does it does really make a difference. And then on that yeah. note, just I, I'm, I'm just conscious of your time. And but I really want people to know where they can help or, or get involved. How does that work within the, the foundation? 
Yeah, well, we, as I said, our head office is based at Chatham Green and we're on a beautiful 400-acre site and we've got a 100-acre wood that we've got a license for nearby. Oh, wow. We really oh, need wow. help with funding for our, our therapy sessions. We've just run out of face-to-face funding. The more money we raise, the more sessions we offer and it's gone. The, the mental health crisis is through the roof. So if anybody can help us with kind of getting more funding in for our therapy, we'd be ever so grateful. And that's for group and individual therapy. We've got a lot of people out there who are significantly struggling struggling, and a lot of young people and adults who, who've lost the point of life. And, you know, our work is to try and really help them discover that there is a point. Uh, we've been given a life and what are we going to do with it and how do we make that work for the best for everybody? Um, and then, you know, we are really short of mentors. So mm. we run our outdoor therapy programs and we train our mentors and we have mentors who work one-to-one with young people at their own convenience, but we really need our day mentors. So all of our group work relies really heavily on our volunteers who are trained and support the young people and adults on our programs and they're part of our team. You know, we're cooking, we're mm. eating, cool. we're talking and sharing together. And uh, we really need that kind of level of support and help. Um, we're building an ambassador team, so people who would be willing to be ambassadors for wilderness and our values. You know, we're really keen to talk to anybody who wants to try and help us with getting the word out. And we're looking for, you know, PR or media or office volunteering. Uh, We've got our allotment in Chelmsford with significantly disabled young people. And we're looking for people who might enjoy vegetable gardening and who would like to work side by side with youngsters who are struggling, young adults, um, Mm. and who are just the most beautiful human beings. And my husband volunteers them. It's just a very inspiring place to be. And if anybody knows of a of anyone who's retired or time on their hands is good with woodwork, we, we're looking for another carpenter to come and work with our special education needs, um, young people outside building and making benches and doing things in the outdoors. So on our website are our different volunteer activities. But, you know, we were a very good, fun, loving, mm. good team, and, and we really appreciate and value all of our volunteers and, and support team immensely. Spiders, the dogs, off again. Um, And and just finally, where's the website that people should go to or the best point of contact? So so thank you, Andy. It's it's www.wildernessfoundation.org.uk, so org.uk. That's where people can find out more about us. And we've got a lot of social media channels that you can link onto on our website as well and sign up for our newsletter. Um, and if anyone's passing Chatham Green, you know, pop by and come and say hello and I meet will, some of the team. We'll hundred percent be coming over to say hello. And I'm sure putting this podcast out, there's lots of people in the Essex area and surrounding that hopefully will be inspired about this conversation that will be in touch, which would be Thank you, Andy. Fabulous. And come, for walk, come for a walk and, and a oh, lean 100%. on a tree. We'd love to have you. Yeah, we'll do and thank you for spending some time with me today. You're really good. That was that was wonderful. Thank you. Thank you. Take care. Bye. If you enjoyed this episode, please check out the shorter episodes, which are clips from my daily live show, The Fun Side of the Island with Andy Ramage, that you can join every day at 7.15am BST by following at Andy Ramage Official on Facebook, Instagram, and on YouTube, search for Andy Ramage. Also, for the first time ever, I'm now training double accredited coaches in my unique coaching blueprint. Go to andyramage.com and check out courses for more information. And if you'd like to train with me on my latest online live course, The Arate Way, also head to andyramage.com courses. I'll make no secret of it. I would love to train with you. So let's make it happen. And I thank you for listening. It's deeply appreciated. The best thing you can do to show some love to the podcast is to click subscribe or follow. And don't forget the sponsors, Athletic Greens, who are giving our listeners a free year supply. Yes, free year supply of vitamin D and five free travel packs today when you go to athleticgreens.com forward slash Andy Ramage and sign up. And I love it most of all when you share the episode you enjoy on social media. You can just take a screenshot as you listen and then put it out and tag me in at Andy Ramage Official on Facebook and Insta. 
You're amazing. Finally, you can sign up to my free newsletter where I share exclusive posts along with things I'm enjoying, such as podcasts, books, quotes, TED Talks, and much more. And many of you message to say this is your favorite thing that I produce. So please check it out by going to andyramage.com and there is an option to sign up at the footer of every page. As always, a massive thank you to Matt McCormick for producing the podcast and thank you to Austin Sweetman for your digital promotions. You can find me on team at andyramage.com, at andyramageofficial on Insta and Facebook and Andy Ramage on YouTube. See you back here soon for another episode. Let's do this.